Hello? Hey, Rich, it's Larson. You got a minute? Sure, Larson. What's up? Hello, and welcome to the Got a Minute podcast. I'm uh, Larson Hicks, and I am joined by Pastor Rich Lusk. How are you doing today, sir? It's great to be with you, Larson. Yeah, man. It's December the 6th. Um, important important day coming up here, uh, my birthday. Um, so, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's the real important day. But <laughs> Larson, let me ask you this. How would yeah. you like it if on your birthday you invited me over to your house for cake and ice cream, but okay. instead I decided to celebrate your birthday just by staying home with my family? How would you like that? Rich, I, I would, I would appreciate, um, you know, it's really about you and about your, you being comfortable. So, you know, I, I think, um, yeah, I think that's, I, I think that makes sense. I mean, I, I guess I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel that special, um, <laughs> you know, but, uh, well, here, you uh, know, the thing is, that's how, that's how some Christians are going to treat Jesus birthday this year. That's true. It's Jesus it's true. has invited them over, not for cake and ice cream, but for bread and wine. And they're going to say, no, thank you, Jesus. I'm just going to, I'm not going to come to your house to celebrate your birthday. I'm just going to stay here with my family in my house to celebrate your birthday. That's crazy. I mean, I think Doesn't it's the same churches who are saying, you know, we're too consumerist and, and we need to, you know, just focus on the reason for the season, which is Jesus and stuff. I, I bet it's the same churches saying that stuff that are also canceling worship. Well, hey, before we get into that, something else. I, I don't know what day this episode will go uh, out on the web, but uh, as you said, today is December 6th, and uh, yeah. today's a special day in itself. This is St. Nicholas Day, uh, always right. a fun day. So, uh, right. you know, St. Nicholas, obviously, we he's come down to us uh, as Santa Claus, yes. but uh, there is a real historical figure behind Santa Claus, St. Nicholas, who was the 4th century Bishop of Myra, which would be in modern-day Turkey. Uh, they're actually ancient uh, icons of Nicholas. Uh, and, of course, he's wearing a red bishop suit. That's why we've got Santa Claus and the red outfit and all of that. Uh, but, uh, you know, one thing that, uh, that that we try to do with our kids, of course, the uh, you know, the whole pull of the Santa Claus myth, you know, the figure that lives at the North Pole and uh, right. keeps track of whether you're naughty and nice and is apparently omniscient and omnipresent and all of that. Uh, one, one thing we tried to do with our kids was really point them to the historical St. Nick. That's cool. And, and, the, and there's so much fascinating history that surrounds Nicholas. Hmm. Uh, so he, he was a very compelling figure uh, historically. So as I said, he was a bishop and uh, really best known, I think, probably for two things. One is uh, he was a uh, member of the Council of Nicaea called by wow. Constantine in 325. This is really what uh, codified orthodoxy for the church, all kinds of debates yeah. going on at the time, particularly over the deity of Jesus. Uh, Nicholas is there at the council. Arius, who denies the deity of Jesus, Arius was right. kind of the arch heretic of the day. Uh, and uh, Arius said that Jesus is the greatest of God's creatures. Uh, he's almost like God, but he's not fully God. And uh, as the story goes, and there's some who say this is more myth than uh, than reality, more legend than than history. But I, there's all there's there are people who make a good case for it being history. So I'm going to go with it. 
yes. that at the council, when Arius was uh, speaking his blasphemies, uh, depending on which version you take, Nicholas goes up to him and either punches him in the face or slaps him on the face. Uh, so the thought of the same man that uh, you know we think of as delivering presents to children all over the world punched out a heretic. I kind of like that. That's awesome. Well, yeah. I mean, he was he was rightly discerning whether uh, whether Arius was naughty or nice. <laughs> he did do that for sure. Yeah, he did. So, I mean, you know, it's also interesting, and, and this is really where the tradition of Nicholas as gift giver comes from. Uh, another famous story that comes down to us, and again, sometimes these stories that come down to us from church history may be somewhat embellished, but supposedly there was uh, a man who had three daughters, and he did not have any money for their bridal dowries. So these women were um, were basically very vulnerable and, and might have ended up as prostitutes or who knows what uh, without help. And uh, supposedly on consecutive nights, first night, uh, Nicholas throws a money bag through the window for one of the girls, and then the next night, another money bag. And by this time, the father's getting pretty suspicious, so he locks the windows. He wants to find out who this is. So since he couldn't get anything through the window, uh, Nicholas dropped the third money bag for the third daughter down the chimney of the house in a sock. So that's how that's we got awesome. stockings and how we got the, the connection with Nicholas and the chimney, all of that. So pretty interesting. So, but, but what I like about that is that it shows you Nicholas as a truly faithful pastor. Yeah, uh, pastors have to be firm with wolves and yeah. heretics, and they have to be gentle towards the, the humble, the needy, the poor, uh, and, and those who are... Um, those who are crying out for help. And you see that with Nicholas. You see both sides, really. He he dealt with the heresy uh, of Arianism, dealt with it firmly and forthrightly and helped produce the Nicene Creed that I know many of our churches recite every yep. Lord's Day. Uh, but he could also show great compassion to those who were in need, as he did with the three girls uh, from That's an so impoverished awesome. family. So it's just really a beautiful picture. It is a beautiful picture, and there's probably a whole rabbit trail to go down around mythology, which which I will I won't take the bait and, and, and dive into that. But I think that's another that's another interesting conversation, maybe for us to have another day. But but I wanted to I want to talk more about his faithfulness as a pastor and kind of the role of of the church. Um, it's kind of a good segue into what we want to talk about today. I actually met with a friend this morning um, who is a a pastor in the PCA, great guy, old friend. Um, uh, but one of the things he struggled with over the years, and still to this day seems to be struggling with, is what is the role of the church? Um, like, what what function does the church play? And he's 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 really big into the idea of evangelism and the importance of evangelism and making disciples. Um, and we kind of talked a little bit about that. Um, but but I, th- I think he's he struggles uh, with. What, what, what's the point of the church? Like, what is the church actually supposed to do? I think he, he recognizes and believes what the Westminster says about the role of the church and things, knows that it's important, but, but I think just practically struggles with what, what it actually is supposed to do. And I think your story about St. Nicholas um, is a really wonderful example. And, and, and it's really kind of where our conversation went this morning is there's a temptation, I think, in a lot of churches to get caught up in... <clears throat> You know the programs or the ideas, the the methods of you know church planting or church growth or being attractional or what you know the different fads that come and go of of how to be a relevant church. Um, and and, and the, you know that's one ditch. You know another ditch a lot of churches fall into is the just infighting. You know that happens within denominations. Just the 
all the calories and you can burn on, you know, the fights about the different political things or theological things. And, and obviously, in, like in the case of the Council of Nicaea, there's absolutely a, a role there, although that's not really a role. That's, I, I think that's more of a Presbytery Council level kind of role. Um, but the local church, you know, when I think about it, um, is exactly what you were talking about. It, it, the, the, the role is you have a flock, you know, of sheep that God has pulled together. And you have a shepherd or shepherds who are responsible for caring for that flock. They're not responsible for caring for some platonic form, some ideal, you know, flock. They're not, they're not responsible for that, you know, flock in, in the heavenly places. They're responsible for the actual sheep that are right there. And so their decisions about what they're doing, you know, what programs they're offering or what, what, what strategies they're using for how they approach worship and how they approach discipleship and all these other things really should be just driven by well, what do our what does our flock need how do we feed the flock you know jesus asking peter over and over do you love me and feed my feed my sheep and that's that's the call of the church to feed the flock so anyway what just you know when it comes to to uh the importance you're talking about canceling worship on on sunday i mean apparently that's not important um anymore uh, in the modern you know conception of the, the, the role that church plays um, you know uh, what what is what is the purpose of the church what is the what is the role that it plays and, and what's the importance of gathering and, and being members of a church yeah Larson you, you raised so many good issues there uh, what is the church why is it important to gather with the church say each, each Lord's Day, why is it important to uh, be a member of a church? And all of these things, I would say, in different ways are under attack, uh, not just in the wider culture. I mean, we would expect that, I think, in this day and age. Yeah. But a lot of times, Christians have sort of become their own worst enemies. And, and it's the church set against itself. It's, it's Christians who are uh, undermining the church and, in a way, sawing off the branch they're sitting on, maybe without realizing it. Uh, because the church really is essential. The church is not optional. The church is essential, and it's essential in all kinds of ways and for all kinds of reasons. And when we understand what the church is, and when we understand what happens when we gather as a church for public worship, uh, you know, when, when we understand what those things are about, I think it can bring a lot of other things into focus for us. Uh, but these are things, this has really been, I think, the great weakness of the Christian faith in the American context is we have a very low view of the church and I think that comes back to haunt us again and again while we have uh, a lot of um, I would say religious vitality you know the the uh, despite all the opposition the evangelical and reform uh, presence in America remains somewhat somewhat strong yeah. uh, still I, th I think that there is a real misunderstanding of the purpose and role of the church the function of the church the necessity of the church the centrality of the church. So I want to, I want to touch on a few of those things. And, and, yeah. and you mentioned December 25th. I know that's where we started because uh, this year, Christmas lands on a Sunday. Christmas Day lands on a Sunday. That happens every so often. And I've noticed this the last several times that Christmas Day has landed on a Sunday is you will have a lot of churches, including a lot of really big, prominent churches, you know, big, prominent evangelical churches that will cancel their services that day. That's kind of what I started off with, you know. Right. 
uh, kind of joking about if you know you invite me to your birthday party and I decide to just celebrate at home. Okay, that, that's what I'm getting at with that is how ironic it is to you know Jesus has invited us into His house, uh, yeah. and, and then we say no, Jesus, I'm going to celebrate your birthday, but not with you. Yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah. Gonna get you or your people to do it. Uh, that's an oddity, but I think that really points out. I think that really exposes. A, a real weakness, kind of the soft underbelly of American evangelicalism that I think has got to be addressed if we really want to move forward and if we want to have, uh, if we want to be able to disciple our nation and gain ground that we've lost and all that. So uh, these are important things to think about for Christians today. Uh, just just a few things. You asked, what is the church? The church is the body and bride of Christ. Uh, the church is the mother of all believers. Uh, the church is the temple of God, the household and family of God. Uh, the church is the, the, the central manifestation of the kingdom of God. Uh, the church has visible and invisible aspects, but I, you know, I subscribe as a Presbyterian. I'm committed to the Westminster Confession of Faith, and, uh, and, and that means I'm committed to viewing the visible church, and this is how the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it in chapter 25, section 2. The visible church is the kingdom uh, family and household of God, outside of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. In Acts chapter 2, after the Holy Spirit has been poured out, Peter's preached his sermon, people have responded with repentance, and they've been baptized. And then th this is how Luke sums up uh, what was happening in those days. He says, Continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. Being added to this church community and being saved were really just two sides of a single coin. Soteriology and ecclesiology, salvation and church go together. Now, people will say, well, just like, you know, I can go stand in my garage, that doesn't make me a car. And showing up right. in church doesn't make me a Christian. Fair enough. I mean, I understand the point being made there, and that's why you have plenty of warnings given to the visible church in Scripture about the need to be faithful, the need to persevere, all of that, the need to be obedient. Uh, but at the same time, if you ask, you know, how does one become a Christian, and what does the Christian life look like? Well, the church plays an indispensable role in all of that. Uh, the church fathers had a saying, you cannot have God for your father unless you have the church as your mother. And they would talk about mother church. In fact, that's not just the early... Uh, the early church, the, the early church fathers have said that. John Calvin says that in his Institutes. He's, he cites that thing. You cannot have God for your father unless you have the church for your mother. Uh, so in book four of his Institutes, he says we have to now discuss uh, the visible church. And so let's start with that title of mother. That's really where he begins. And so if you think of it that way, uh, you know, everybody has a mother. You can't come into this world without a mother. And you need that mother to nurture you and to care for you. And so it is with every Christian. Every Christian has to have a mother, and that mother is the church, and you need her nurture. You need her teaching and instruction, her care, her love, her support. You cannot live the Christian life without her. Uh, that does not mean that every person who comes to church on a Sunday or even every person who joins a church is automatically saved, but it does mean right. the church is the place of salvation, and it's through the church that God is applying the salvation that Christ has accomplished. It's through the word as it's proclaimed, it's through the sacraments as they are administered that God saves his people. So the mission of the church, according to the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a good summary of scripture, uh, on this topic, I believe that the purpose of the church is to gather and perfect God's elect. 
or the way we put it at my church, Trinity Presbyterian Church here in Birmingham, the way we put it, uh, it's mission and maturity. Mission is the gathering, maturation is the perfecting. So it's about mission and maturity. That's what the church is about. And so I would say there's no there's no other way to be a to be a Christian uh, other than to be uh, within the church. The whole idea of an unchurched Christian, kind of lone ranger Christian, yeah. uh, kind of do it yourself Christian that that's that's a complete contradiction in terms. A Christian is a churchman by definition. Again, that's how Luke 2 puts it. The Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. Being added to the church and being saved, being saved and being incorporated into the body of Christ were one and the same for them. I think uh, there's so many things about what you just said that I think are really, really uh, important and and underappreciated, underdiscussed uh, in our day. And, 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 in, and I really think in the South, especially you know, what you said about the fact that like our, our, um, the South and America in general is still, has managed to be a fairly, you know, Christian and Bible kind of saturated culture in spite of our very low view of the church. Um, and, and, uh, and I think what Calvin says, what the Westminster Confession says, um, is starting to, to kind of show its, rear its head in our culture. This idea that we're sort of, we've moved from positive world and neutral world into negative world. We've moved into this, this period in America, some call it a post-Christian era, you know, where, where, where Christianity is, is no longer um, the norm or, or an advantage for anybody. Um, I think it's, it's kind of the, the result of our lack of a, our, our low view of the church. Um, and I see, I mean, what I've seen that's, that's become incredibly popular in this, in, in this part of the world is people who have grown up in the church and don't really know why they go to church. Like don't have any understanding for what's the point, you know, what, what does church do for me uh, that, that I can't get by myself and my own quiet time with Jesus. And you're seeing this huge emergence of the home church movement. Francis Chan, um, and uh, and we've had a ton of refugees from home churches end up at our church, um, and uh, and I think that's a that's that it's been interesting to me to kind of hear their stories of kind of the the disaster of of home churches. You know, there's this kind of honeymoon phase that they all go through. Of, feeling like it's almost like you're LARPing, like you're a first century church. You know, you get to pretend you're in the first century and you're, you're, you're meeting in a secret church or whatever. Um, but pretty quickly issues arise, (laughs) doctrinal differences arise, church discipline issues arise. You realize this husband doesn't seem like he's disciplining his kids or this wife seems like she's in high rebellion against her husband. And there's no mechanism in a, in a home church for a sh- there's no there's no place for a shepherd you know um and there's no commitment like the, the, y- there's no commitment from anybody to the the institution nobody's a member of anything we're all just members of the invisible church and that's all that matters well it's all that matters until it might be all that matters but until you get to a place where somebody's in sin and has to be dealt with and that sin has to be dealt with what do you do then 
Yeah, that's really, really good, Larson. Uh, and, you, and again, you're hitting on a lot of really important things um, and, and some of the inadequacies of the home church movement. I want to come back to that in just a minute. I want to, yeah. I want to take these things one at a time because you have got yeah. several threads there going that I think are really, really worthy of, uh, of more attention. Let me, let me let me let me take two questions first, and then we'll come back to the home the home church yeah. question. Uh, first, why go to church, and then second, yeah. why join a church? Okay, why yeah, go to church? Well, here's a thumbnail sketch of some reasons. Um, one is all throughout the scripture, but I would say particularly in the Psalms, you see this desire that the people of God have to gather together for worship. Yeah. So, for example, the, the psalmist says, I rejoiced when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Those are words that we use uh, from, what is it, Psalm 121 or so, right around there, uh, that we use in our service every Sunday. Every Sunday we're saying those words. And that desire of the psalmist to, to meet with the people of God, to right. go to the house of God, that's a normative desire. You know, the, the yeah. psalms, uh, are, are they, they uh, show us, really what the Christian life ought to look like. And so an aspect of that is this, this joy, this rejoicing in gathering with God's people. Yeah. Uh, I'll give you another line of argument. Um, I was actually having this conversation with another pastor the other day, and we we're just talking about preaching and, you know, kind of shop talk for pastors. And, and he said, you know, how, you know, how, what have you thought about your preaching in the last year? And he said, you know, what's, what, what do you think is the best sermon you preached? And I said, well, I said, I don't know what the best sermon is. You know, I, I'd have to think about that some. But he said, I know what my favorite sermon is that I preached this year. Uh, I preached a sermon, I think it was back in the summer, like maybe in June. Uh, and, and the title of the sermon was something like uh, that famous billboard on I-65 northbound is right. And some of you may know what I'm talking about. You know, if you drive from Birmingham or from Huntsville yeah. down to the beach, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, you're going to take I-65 down, okay? Yeah, uh, I-65. But when, when you're coming back up, when, when you're north, going north on I-65, right around Prattville, so just past Montgomery, uh, there is a big billboard there, and it's very picturesque. You know, it's this beautiful uh, sort of pasture land with, a, with like a farmhouse and a water wheel out there. And then there's this gigantic billboard that says, go to, the, go to church where the devil will get you. And it's got, a, it's, got, it's got a picture of a devil, you know, with horns and pitchfork uh, on the billboards. It just, it really stands out. Go to church where the devil will get you. And I preached a sermon on that billboard uh, because that billboard, billboard is right. Go to church where the devil will get you. In fact, in the sermon, uh, what I said is, you know, the, the billboard doesn't even go far enough. It's, it's actually worse than that. It's not go to church or the devil will get you. It's go to church where God will get you, which is even scarier. Uh, and and the, the, the text that I used for the sermon uh, was uh, Hebrews 10. And in Hebrews 10, uh, and I, I won't read the whole passage for us, but in Hebrews 10, 19 to 25, it's kind of one block. It's one, uh, it, it, it's, it's, there's one, uh, the, the, the main command there comes at the end, to not forsake the assembling of ourselves to gather. So that's really mm -hmm. the punchline. But how he gets there is really interesting. He says, we have confidence to enter the holy place. And of course, you know, for an old covenant Israelite, the, the, the holy place was the uh, inner sanctuary, the inner chamber of the tabernacle or then the temple. But of course, every Israelite also knew, and the book of Hebrews makes a big deal out of this, that earthly tabernacle or the earthly temple was a copy of the heavenly original, the heavenly model. And 
actually, when Hebrews 10 talks about entering the holy place by the blood of Jesus, it's talking about entering not the sanctuary on earth, but the sanctuary in heaven. And he's made reference to this all throughout the book. Like in Hebrews chapter 4, he says, um, he talks about coming before the throne of grace. Well, the throne of grace on earth would have been the Ark of the Covenant, where the mercy seat was located. But he's obviously talking about the throne of grace in heaven. You know, coming before God in prayer, in worship, coming before the throne of grace to get the help that we need. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 12, he actually contrasts Old Covenant Israel coming to Mount Sinai, a mountain that can be touched, with the New Covenant Church coming to the heavenly Mount Zion. And we've come to um, we've come to the presence of Jesus and to the presence of uh, departed saints that have been perfected in the presence of angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, he says in, in Hebrews 12. So throughout the book of Hebrews, there is this sense that the heavenly sanctuary has now been opened to believers, and we enter into that heavenly sanctuary when we gather together for worship. Calvin, John Calvin connected this with the what's called the Sursum Corda in the liturgy, mm -hmm. where we cry out, uh, the pastor will say, lift your hearts up to the Lord, and the people say, we lift them up to the Lord, and Calvin said that's when we enter into the heavenly sanctuary. And that's exactly right. And that seems to be what Hebrews is talking about. We lift our hearts up to the Lord. We enter into the holy place. So he says, let us draw near. And that's actually technical language, drawing near. That's language for uh, sacrificial worship in the old covenant. Like you go back to the book of Leviticus, you draw near with your sacrifice at the tabernacle. Well, he says, let us draw near by this new and living way that Jesus has opened for us through his flesh. He says, we have Jesus as our great high priest over the house of God. So he says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. So we draw near to God in the heavenly sanctuary by faith. It says, having had our hearts sprinkled with the blood of Christ, so we've been cleansed, and having had our bodies washed with water, our baptisms, new covenant baptism is our ordination to the royal priesthood of the church. And just like the priests in the old covenant would get ordained, including a washing with water, and then would draw near, so we Christians were baptized, and then we draw near. That's our ordination to the priesthood. And now, so... We're holy people now with access to holy space. And so we draw near in this way. So he says, let us consider how to stir one another up to good, uh, to good works. And then he says, not neglecting the meeting together, not neglecting synagoguing together, is what he actually says, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more. So, so really the punchline of the whole thing is don't stop gathering. Don't stop gathering together. Uh, don't neglect the meeting together, the synagoguing together of God's people. What happens when we gather together? We enter into heaven. We enter into the heavenly sanctuary. We draw near through Christ into the most holy place. Mm -hmm. And that's where God's gifts are. That's where God's presence is. That's where we receive God's wisdom and mercy and, and you know all those wonderful things that we want and that we need. But then you got to keep reading because... You know, you got that nine, verses 19 through 25 of Hebrews 10. That's kind of one thought. But then verse 26 and following really continues it with a warning. So he's just said, don't stop meeting together as some have. And then verse 26, he says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. You think, oh my goodness, this, this is a fierce, harsh judgment. What's it mean to go on sinning deliberately? Well, what is the sin that has just been mentioned? Mm -hmm. It is the sin of neglecting church attendance, the sin of neglecting worship. It's not just go to church or the devil will get you. 
It's go to church and enter into heaven, draw mm-hmm. near into the heavenly most holy place. Okay, But it's also not just go to church or the devil will get you. It's go to church or if you sin deliberately by refusing to gather with God's people, you have nothing but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. God will count you as his enemy if you stop attending church. One thing that really, you know, the, the, the American church has become so casual. There's no fear of God before our eyes. We don't, we don't come before God uh, in reverence and awe. Uh, we have, you know, as American Christians, we tend to have a very breezy, casual relationship with God. And so we kind of saunter into God's presence if we, just, if, if, if we show up at all. And then we're very casual in how we do most everything. And, I'm, and I think that's a huge problem because of what it communicates. Uh, things like bodily postures and how yeah. we dress and the language we use and the level of formality all indicate whether or not you think this is an event that carries weight and significance. Right. What's crazy is we still tend to have that kind of reverence and solemnity uh, when it comes to, say, a wedding. Weddings mm-hmm. are joyful and reverent occasions for, for, right. for most, most of the time still in our culture. I mean, historically, that's how it's been. A, a wedding combines solemnity and formality and reverence with joy and delight. And really, that's how worship ought to be. It ought to combine those two things. But the American mm-hmm. church has gone so far in, in this uh, casual, informal direction. Yeah. And I think it, it says a lot about how we view God and, and how we view sin and how we view salvation. And none of it is good. None of it is good. We need to keep passages like this in mind. Go to church and if you refuse to gather with God's people, if that's no longer your habit, if you sin deliberately by refusing to gather with the people of God on the Lord's day, there no longer remains a sacrifice for your sins, but rather a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. It is worse to fall into the hands of an angry God than it is to fall into the hands of Satan. <laughs> because it's really God's judgment you should fear, not Satan. And that's what this passage is saying. If you, if you refuse to gather with God's people, God will count you as an enemy and treat you accordingly. It's huge. I mean, and, and, and I think like on the solemnity thing, it's like we're, we're somehow the, the God of the Old Testament, you know, cared deeply about solemnity and, and, and about um, the particulars of worship and had very prescriptive um, you know, expectations. Uh, and somehow because of Christ that God no longer cares, you know, I mean, somehow, um, so now Christianity is all in your heart and your mind and it's all spiritual and there's, there's no, uh, your body doesn't really matter and, and what to do with your body and how you're dressed and, and where you are physically, <clears throat> whether you're with people or not. But, but, but like you're saying right here in the New Testament, you've got this, whole passage, the, the, the whole point is gathered together in person with God's people. Uh, this, is, this is your, your duty. Um, and, uh, and, and, and like you said, if you, if you neglect that, then you are, then you are uh, thinking you know, God's judgment. Yeah, so, you know, so I talked about how we, I think you're exactly right, Larson, and I talked about how we tend to be very uh, casual about worship yeah. We, we tend to be very casual about church attendance. Well, I'll right. go to church so long as nothing more important comes along. 
No, there is no. nothing more important. This no. is the foundation that you're building your whole week upon. It's really the foundation you're building your whole life upon is what happens in gathered worship. I think Absolutely. one thing that happened during COVID and during the lockdowns is it became really evident that, and we may have talked about this a little bit before, but it became really evident that a lot of American pastors had never taught their people, and maybe don't know themselves, but they'd never taught their people why attendance in the weekly Lord's Day service is so important, why it's so vital to the Christian life, why it's so central and foundational, why, why everything else flows out of that. You know, the, 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 the early Christians would talk about the liturgy after the liturgy. So you gather for the liturgy, and then that's what sets the stage, you know, that, that gathering for public worship, that's what enables us to worship God in the rest of our lives, to turn daily life into worship. But you yeah. can't turn daily life into worship unless you are gathering for special worship. You can't have that kind of general worship in your life if you're not gathering for special worship regularly, week by week. And we do see very clearly in all kinds of ways that there is this um, weekly pattern that's been given to us. You can go back to the fourth commandment in the Ten Commandments to keep the Sabbath day holy. Well, the way we sanctify the Sabbath day is by gathering for worship. Now we know that seventh day is now the first day, but we know that because um, we've got an example that's set for us in several different ways in the New Testament. So for example, Jesus, of course, rose from the dead on the first day and he meets with his disciples and actually on the road to Emmaus, you know, we've, we've got that. He meets with uh, what seems to be a husband-wife pair and then he goes to their house and breaks bread with them. And so he's, he's establishing this pattern that on the first day of the week, he's going to meet with his people. Mm. Um, he meets with 12 in, in, the, in the upper room. Thomas is not there. Jesus does not appear to Thomas and show himself to Thomas on a Monday or a Tuesday or a Wednesday. Mm. He waits till the following eighth day or first day of the week, mm. what we would now call the Lord's Day, okay, the Christian mm. Sabbath. And then he meets with Thomas as if to establish this pattern. I'm going to meet with you in a special way. Yes, I'm always with you, but I'm going to meet with you in a special way on the first day of the week when you gather together for worship to celebrate my resurrection. I will be with you as the risen Lord. Uh, in Acts chapter 20, you know, we know Paul went around establishing churches and preaching. Well, in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, uh, he's in Troas. It says that they gather together on the first day of the week for the breaking of the bread. So obviously it's a reference to coming together for the Lord's Supper as the Lord's people on the Lord's Day. They gather to break the bread together on the first day of the week. And of course, there's also a sermon. They, you know, Peter, I'm sorry, Paul preaches. In fact, he preaches a really long sermon, so long that some junior high kid falls asleep and falls out the window, and Paul has to run down and resurrect him because Paul's Paul preached till like midnight. Uh, but but we see a pattern being established, this apostolic example following the example of Jesus, this example, this model, this pattern of meeting on the first day of the week to hear the word and to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so weekly worship with the word and with the supper, weekly worship gathered around the word and the table is normative for Christians. So if you're listening to this and you don't go to, you know, you, you're kind of hit and miss with your church attendance, you need to take it a lot more seriously. Uh, if you're in a church and that church very infrequently uh, celebrates the Lord's Supper, that's an issue. That's departing from the pattern that we've been given in Scripture, from what's normative. If uh, your church cancels worship, 
uh, for things like because Christmas, you know, lands on a Sunday this year and we don't want to inconvenience anybody. Uh, or if they regularly do things like substituting a, I've heard of churches doing this too. We're not going to have regular worship on, you know, on this Sunday. We're just going to let the choir sing some songs to us. No. I've heard, Rich, I've heard a church locally say that they were taking a Sabbath from worship once. <laughs> it was like in so the newsletter. And it was like, <laughs> that word that you're using, so I don't know that, that it means what you think it means. It does not mean what you think it means. Yeah. So you, you, yeah. That, oh, that's, it's, just, it's just maddening to watch the American church shoot itself in the foot again and again and again. And then we wonder why there are so many Christians who make so little difference. Right. And this is, this is really the heart of the reason why. Because we, are, we, have a, we have no understanding at all, so many Christians in America today, no understanding at all of what the church is, why public worship matters. Uh, we just don't understand. You know, one, of the, one of the hymns that we sing regularly in my church, I don't know if you guys sing this one, Larson, but it's To Your Temple I Draw Near by James Montgomery. Uh, the first verse goes this way. To your temple I draw near. Lord, I love to worship here. When within the veil I meet Christ before the mercy seat. Um, last couple verses. While your minister proclaims peace and pardon in your name, by your grace through faith may I hear you speaking from the sky. So this, this understanding that uh, when, the, when the pastor proclaims absolution, when he preaches faithfully from the word of God, uh, the preached word of God is the word of God. And then the final mm -hmm. verse, from your house when I return, may my heart within me burn. That's an allusion to Luke 24, the road to Emmaus. Mm -hmm. Uh, experience. And at evening, let me say, I have walked with God today. So it's just got this really, I mean, that's just the historic understanding of the church and a biblical understanding uh, that Christians have had throughout the ages of what happens in gathered worship. Okay. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so I think we've lost that in a lot of segments of the church today, and it's proving yeah. to be a disaster. It's why we have a lot of Christians who don't get very, you know, who don't make very much difference in the world. Uh, you know, Christianity today, it's it's 2,000 miles wide and it's about a half inch deep uh, mm -hmm. in America. There's just not much depth. And this is why. Yeah, absolutely. I, you brought up COVID and I think it was a good, it was a great, uh, that's a great point. Um, I, and, and one of the things I thought I thought of during that time <clears throat> is that our children, our children are, I always think of kids as like the ultimate hypocrisy detectors. Like our, our kids our kids will imitate what we do, not what we say. Uh, you know, actually, they'll imitate what we say and we do. Like they know how to say the right things and then do whatever it is we want, uh, the way that their parents do. And and uh, and and when when almost anything is an excuse not to go to church. You know, uh, someone's someone's got a a travel soccer game or someone's right. got you know, the world cup or whatever to watch or whatever it is, you know, there's always, or I just stayed out a little too late Saturday night. So I'm going to sleep in. Yeah. 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 Or, you know, there's, I mean, even like, and this is, this is maybe a controversial one, but, but even the, Hey, there's a bug going around. I'm, I, I, I don't want to catch it. So I'm going to, I'm going to play it safe and stay home. Even that to me is, is a real problem. I, I get the idea of, Hey, if you're sick and you got something that's nasty, don't spread it, you know, love your neighbor, stay home. I, I'm, I'm, I'm totally fine with that. But, um, but I mean, this is what we were dealing with, with COVID and, and <clears throat> to give an example, you know, we had a debate in our church about, 
right in the middle of it, you know, at, at the height, you know, should we wear masks or should we wear gloves, you know, when we're serving communion? And um, I came down hard on the no side. And, and my point on that was um, there's no way for us for, there's no way for us to wear masks and it not to communicate something something liturgical I mean we're, we're, we're taking a liturgical action here um, in the word in God's in, in the certain you know in, in in Sabbath worship um, and it is going whether we like it or not it is going to communicate something to the people so let's ask ourselves what is that communicating to to God's people and to me and again I'm not saying that you can't have a different view on this and 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 and, and not you know, be, and, 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 you, and not be faithful. But, but my perspective on it was that mask is communicating to, um, to the people of God on the Lord's day that, that we fear death, that God is not, um, that God is not, doesn't protect his people. And, um, and, and I, I just, in, in my mind, I, I felt like that was a, that was a bridge too far. Um, I, I believe in a, supernatural God, you know, who, who, who sends plagues and sends famines and sends pestilence, um, and, and also protects his people and loves his people. And so if, if he's going, you know, so anyway, I, I just feel like, um, you know, everything we do with worship, um, in the service and, and, and our choices to go or not to go, all of it communicates very clearly, um, whether whether you're saying it explicitly or not. You're saying something, uh, and your children especially are listening and watching and learning. That is so true, and and so I want to go back to the example you started with. Yeah. You know, let's say a family that skips church because Junior has a soccer game. Yeah. Okay. This is this is, I've seen this play out several times. It's a pattern. This is what happens. You got a Christian family. They're in church maybe 50% of the time. You know, the other half of the time they're sleeping in or they don't go to church when they're on vacation or they've got travel, baseball or soccer, what have you. And then what happens is they, they have trained their kids that, well, yeah, we go to church some of the time, but church is clearly not all that important. And uh, it, it doesn't take a whole lot for us to find something else to do on a Sunday. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so it's never been this priority that everything else, you know, instead of instead of having everything else adjust around going to church, going to church is the thing that gets removed so you can do all these other things. What happens then is those kids grow up and then let's say they go off to college and then it comes, it's really pretty easy to find a reason to not go to church. And next thing you know, they've dropped out of church. They're no longer being fed and shepherded. Uh, they don't have any accountability. They don't really have very much Christian community. Maybe they get involved in a campus ministry, but that's you know that's not the same. Well, and next thing you know, the kids that you uh, the you know the, the kids that you thought you were raising to be Christian kids have completely apostatized from the faith. And it's really your own fault in a lot of ways because you set them up for it because you did not teach them about the importance of gathering for worship each Lord's Day. You, you taught them that other things are more important. And so, of course, when they get out on their own, that's the lesson they've learned. You've catechized them to be um, consumerist Americans with a dash of religion on the side instead of to be faithful Christians who will stand against the world. Yeah. 
And, and I, I mean, obviously, there's more to being a faithful Christian again than just attending church on Sunday. If you can't, you know, the thing is, if your faith is not strong enough to get you out of bed and get you to church on a Sunday morning, yeah. it's probably not strong enough to do anything else for you either. That's right. So, so the whole idea that you're going to somehow live this faithful Christian life and be very uh, sporadic in your church attendance is is just a lie. It's a yeah. it's a satanic lie. That yeah, takes me back to the billboard. Go to church or the devil will get you. Go to church right. or the devil can have his way with you. And I've seen it happen again and again and again. Right. It's like that saying everybody wants to everybody wants to save the world but nobody wants to nobody wants to take out the trash or do the dishes or whatever. It's right. like it's like wh- why in the world do you expect that you're going to be able to make some huge contribution to the world or to the church um, when you can't do the the most basic fundamental, you know, thing? Uh, Rich, you I, you've sold me on church attendance, um, and and I and I hope that those who are listening uh, are sold as well. But but I, I don't think uh, I'm convinced yet that I need to be a member of a church. You know. So, yeah. So let's talk about that too for just yeah, a minute. So so why join a church? You know, the, the the reality is that if you if you rewind far enough back in history, you know, say you're a peasant growing up in a European village in the 1300s. Yeah. The idea of having to join a church wouldn't make a lot of sense because you would have lived your whole life as a member of a church. There's only one church within walking distance anyway. Yeah. You're yeah. either in, you know, you're in that church, church or you're not in the church at all. And yeah. uh, so you, you don't really think about joining a church. You got baptized as an infant. You've grown up in the context of the church and the Christian faith, and that's that. So in some ways, having to talk about joining a church is the product of several different factors, several different dynamics that have arisen in the modern world. One of them is denominationalism. The, you know, I live in a church that, I live in a city that's got, you know, a thousand plus churches representing a multitude of different denominations. And then the question is, well, okay, so which one do I go to? So there, there's that question. Uh, then there's also the fact that things like Transportation are much easier for us today. We can cover uh, much uh, larger uh, areas uh, much more quickly, and so again, you've got you know you can you can actually attend churches even in you know the next town over. You could attend church in the next town over, you know, if you wanted to. Uh, so uh, it, it's you got a lot of uh, a lot of questions that are the product of modern life. So if you don't see a command in the Bible that says thou shalt join a church. This right. is why. It's because it would have been taken right. for granted that if, you know, just like I read from Acts chapter 2, the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. So added yeah. to the visible church, this visible community, uh, this assembly, this gathering. So these are Christians who are gathering in communities every Lord's Day. And there's no question mm-hmm. about what church, you know, you're going to have to join a church. You just are a part of the church. In today's world, we do have to think about joining the church because it's a different, which is a different context. But I, st- I think we can make a really good case for this from the different things that we find in Scripture. So, for example, one thing we see in Scripture, and you already made reference to this, Larson, is the fact that the church has a kind of institutional uh, structure to it, an organizational structure to it. And that includes officers, pastors and elders and deacons. Uh, and what's interesting is that the uh, you, you find lots of references to this, of course, in the Old Covenant, but then, but then especially in the New Testament scriptures, we find a lot of things that would be very relevant for us uh, along these lines. So if somebody says, you know, I, I'm just going to attend church, I don't need to join a church. I've had this, I've had this conversation in real life more than once, oh, yeah. and it goes like this. I will say to the person, okay, so you say you don't need to join the church. You're, you've been attending my church for a while, but you say you don't need to join. Can I ask you a question? 
Uh, Hebrews 13, talking about church life, says, obey your elders, obey those who rule over you. Okay, mm-hmm. so obey your elders. Who are your elders? They'll say, well, it's the elders of this church. You know, they're my church, even though I haven't joined. And I will say, okay, well, this says obey your elders. So if the elders here commanded you to join, would you obey? <laughs> and at that point, they can see the dilemma. Uh, if they say no, then they're obviously disobeying scripture that says obey your elders. Uh, they well, say, how, yeah, how do you know who you're, okay. yeah. How do you know who are your elders versus someone else's? Right, exactly. And, and it also and so, says that they're going to give an account, right? Elders, elders are, are going to give an account. Yeah, elders are shit. And that's actually what it goes on to say in that passage in Hebrews 13. It says, for they will give an account for your souls. So mm-hmm. elders have to know who's in and who's out. They have to know who they're responsible for. They have to know who they will give an answer to when, when they stand before God at the judgment. God's going to want to give. God's going to demand an accounting for every soul that was under their care. So they've got to know who those people are. So mm-hmm. it says that they're to give an account. Well, what do accountants do? Accountants track numbers. Okay, right. shepherds should track members. Shepherds should track souls the way accountants track numbers. We want accountants who take good care of numbers, who watch the numbers carefully. Okay, we want shepherds. We want elders who keep track of the members of their flock. Uh, who track them, who watch over them carefully. That, that's the whole point. Uh, so in order to do that, you have to know who's in and who's out. So just attending a church once or twice doesn't automatically make you a member in this day and age. That should be obvious. Uh, it doesn't mean that these elders are now your elders who have to give an account for you. Uh, so that there's got to be some kind of formalizing of the relationship. So that, that's one thing to keep in mind. Uh, obey your elders. you got to know who your elders are. If the elders are shepherds, they have to know who the sheep and their flock are. Uh, further, as we've already made reference to, there's no such thing as an unchurched Christian or a lone ranger Christian. Outside of the church, there's no ordinary yeah. possibility of salvation. You can't have God for your father unless you have the church for your mother, all those kinds of things. Uh, another uh, analogy that comes from the early church based on 1 Peter 3 is that the church is like Noah's Ark. Uh, and even kind of get this sense, you know, well, I might stink on the inside, but it sure beats drowning on the outside. I mean, everybody's got a problem with the church because the church is full of sinners. And guess what? The pastor is a sinner, too. All the elders are sinners, too. So, of course, church life is messy. But it's precisely in the context of that messiness that our sanctification takes place. The, the New Testament is full of commands that can only be fulfilled if you're living in the context of a church community. Uh, to love one another, pray for one another, bear one another's burdens, uh, all those kind of all those one anothering commands. Uh, yeah. So that, that presupposes a defined fellowship, a, a defined community. Uh, so that, that'd Rich, be another way to look at this. Another question for you on this topic. I know that, I know that different reformers or you know, different theologians have had different ways of defining what the essential marks of a church are. Um, word and sacrament is commonly, you know, uh, the, the two kind of essential in the Protestant church. But I know that, I know that um, discipline ha- has been for some an assen- part of the essential uh, uh, marks of, of what is or isn't a, a, an actual church. Can you shed some light on that? Yeah, because this is really one more way of, I think, making the case for why church membership is so important. Church discipline. And Jesus outlines a church discipline process in Matthew chapter 18. We can pick up more details as to how this is supposed to work in Paul's letters, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where he calls on the Corinthian church to discipline a man, you know, who's a member of the church, but is apparently sleeping with his stepmother, you know, some, something perverse like that. So, uh, yeah, church discipline. But church discipline 
uh, if, if the person being disciplined refuses to repent, they're ultimately excommunicated. They are put out of the church. They're no longer welcome to commune with us. They're not part of our communion any longer. But see, you cannot be excommunicated unless you have first been incommunicated. So church discipline also presupposes church membership. So it's, yeah. so it's the same kind of thing. So, so you know, church membership, church discipline can be thought of as a kind of amputation. A person is a member of the body of Christ, and now they're having to be cut off. In fact, Paul, one of the illustrations he uses for this in the pastoral epistles is he talks about gangrene. You know, like if you've got mm. gangrene, you're, you know, you might have to have a limb be amputated or that's going to kill you. That's going to spread through the whole body and destroy your body. So you have to amputate that member. Well, in a way, that's how, that's what church discipline is about. Uh, this person ha- is now cancerous. They're 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 a uh, an infected member of the body, and we don't want that infection to spread any further. So, for the health and well-being of the body, we have to cut that person off. Now, of course, we also are aiming at the repentance of that person; that they would be healed and restored. And in First Corinthians, that guy that Paul excommunicates in First Corinthians for sexual sin, sexual perversion, that not even the pagans commit. Okay, in 2 Corinthians, it appears that man has been restored to fellowship. So it seems the church discipline did its job. It purified the church, and it also shamed the sinner and brought him to repentance so then he could be restored to the body uh, as, you know, as a repentant uh, member. Yeah, I think, I think the lack of, of... Okay, so all of these things are connected, but, but people don't join churches anymore. Membership is, is de-emphasized. Uh, but but churches also don't practice church discipline anymore, and uh, that component of life, that 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 potential threat, you know, that's hanging over you. That hey, I I uh, you know, it, 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 prior to the Reformation, when you had a you know kind of um, you just had the Roman Catholic Church, you know, the, excommunication was was a pretty huge deal because you you were you were. You were. Um, it had real social, uh, economic implications, um, and and but we're you know in a in, a, in the modern context, um, nobody's a member of any church. When you go to join a church, there's no checking in typically with past churches to make sure you're aware of any issues, um, and so you can get, you can you know commit adultery or 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 some some sin, heinous sin in one church. And just kind of be shown the back door and walk over across the street to the next church, and join and and, the, and no one's the wiser um, and nobody cares because uh, because we've we've removed this piece. So, in one sense, the discipline piece, the lack of discipline, is a great um, uh, is a great uh, failing of the shepherds to do their job. Um, but but I would also say, in my own experience, I've I've had the um, experience early in in early in my married life of, of, of watching a healthy church, um, perform church discipline or maybe perform is not the right word, but exercise church discipline. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it was a sobering thing for me. And, and also it was, a, it was, a, I remember it very clearly. It was a, it was a husband who uh, had a pornography addiction and a gambling addiction and was squandering all of his family's money and the church came alongside that family and and disciplined the husband. He ended up being excommunicated. Um, but the most glorious, probably still one of the most profound experiences I've ever had in a worship service was the Sunday 
when that man re- had repented and came back into fellowship and we yeah. all, yeah. you know, it was announced and we all stood and sang it's the like doxology. prodigal son returning home. And it was the most beautiful thing. And, and, and it still gives me goosebumps. I mean, we were, the whole church was weeping. Um, and, uh, but, but I remember in that moment saying, realizing, and this is something I tell dads uh, all the time is the biggest threat to your family, the biggest threat in the whole world to your family, to your wife and your kids is you. Exactly <laughs> you dad, right. Right. have the most potential to do the most harm in these people's lives. Very true. And if, if you love your family, you will protect them by putting yourself under the authority of the church. Um, because I know we all hope and, and expect that we're, we're never going to fall you know, into sin or, or fall away. But let's face it, this happens. People fall into sin. I want right now, while I'm of sound mind and, and, and in right relationship with God, I want to put my family under that protection. Um, the best protection I can, I can get for my family against, God forbid, the day when I go off the rails and have a, a mental, spiritual breakdown is, ha- is having my, my church uh, step, stand in the gap and protect my family. Yeah, I, you're you're exactly right, and that, that's a great analogy, and that's a that's a great uh, you know example of church discipline being done, being done well, and it having an effect on you know, and everybody in the congregation. I'm sure you're not the only one who found it a very sobering moment. Absolutely. But then also having the restoration when the man repents, which of course that's always our hope. Church discipline, we do church discipline for the glory of God, yep. the good of the church, and the hoped for repentance of the offender. All of those purposes together. Uh, I would say, if anybody listening this to this podcast, if you're in a church that doesn't do that, you know that you just know would not do church discipline, or if you're a, if you've been attending a church that does not uh, have church you know formalized church membership in any way, I, I would ask whether or not that's the right place for you to be because, as you said, Larson, historically there have been certain marks uh, that we have said these are the things that identify the church: yes. the faithful preaching of the word, the right administration of the sacraments. And the practice of church discipline. Yeah. Church discipline is the church's immune system. Without it, the church has no way of drawing the line between the church and the yeah. world. Without it, the church is totally vulnerable to whatever infections or uh, heresies or, or what have you the world wants to bring in. There, there's no yeah. way of dealing with those things. So, you know, Groucho Marx once said, I would never join a club that would have me. Okay, well, I would turn that around. I would say, never join a church that will excommunicate you. Never join a church that would not excommunicate you uh, if, if you were found to be in serious sin. Yeah, that's good. Well, and, and you know, we talked about home church earlier. Uh, the, the thing that's interesting, the pattern I've seen, just just totally anecdotally, but the pattern I've seen locally is the, the families who seem most attracted to the home church kind of movement tend to be kind of the prairie muffin, patriarchal, kind of there's a lot of those folks that have that bent towards well we want to be old-fashioned and we want to we want to you know we want to have you know uh, you know live out on a farm and, and have a subsistence thing and, and and there's this like like we just want to be independent and self-reliant and and the irony of that is that typically um there is a high view of the father's role and the father's authority uh, in those families. Um, but like I said earlier, your kids, your wife are going to imitate what you do, not what you say. 
And so I've talked to these dads who have said, I'm having a hard time with my wife or my kids submitting to my authority. And my question to them is, interesting, <clears throat> what example have you set for them in that right, regard? Right, Whose authority right. are you under? Um, and the question is, well, I'm under God's authority and, and the word of God. And it's like, okay, well, I bet you your, your family would say the same thing to you uh, as they diso- as, as yeah. they as they undermine your, your authority and, and don't respect you. Yeah, these, these are people who have a high view of their own authority and a low view of everyone else's. One of my friends described guys like this, you know, the kind of man you're describing. Uh, one of my friends described th- those men this way. Donkeys pretending to be steeds. <laughs> you know, they think they're the, you know, the, the, the incredible white horse, you know, when actually they're just a donkey uh, or worse. But uh, yeah, so I, I, th- I think these are people who have a very high view of their own authority and a very low view of everybody else's, okay? The people that are under their authority, they demand obedience. But when they are under authority, uh, they feel totally free to disregard it. So yeah, you're exactly right to call out the hypocrisy of that. And I've, I think we probably, you know, yeah. uh, I, I could give you several examples of that kind of thing that I've seen as well. But, you know, the home church movement and I do think it's something of a movement. It's a fad. I think you're exactly right. I think it's largely driven by a kind of nostalgia or a kind mm-hmm. of sentimentalism or a kind of romanticism about another era. Modern life is complicated. It's hard. There are all these challenges. If we're going to be a part of the world around us and engage that world. So maybe we can just drop out of that world and kind of create our own little private enclave with my family yeah. and maybe a few other like-minded families and uh, we'll just build the kingdom of God that way. But that, that's really kind of a dead end. Uh, that, that's not going to go anywhere. That's not going to accomplish anything of lasting value, lasting significance. The only way to achieve something of lasting significance is to build an institution right. that will endure for generations to come. Yeah. And a home church, by definition, is not going to do that. Yeah. Uh, so I, and, and I want to be clear here. The, the issue is not where a church meets. Okay, because no, there's no question when the early Christians got driven out of the synagogue, because, you know, for a while they were attached to the synagogue. But when the early Christians got driven out of the synagogue, basically excommunicated from the synagogue for believing that Jesus is the Messiah, uh, you know, they did sometimes meet in uh, homes. Usually it'd be the home of a wealthy member that would have more room. Um, but. There, there was no, there was no, uh, there was nothing strategic or tactical about that. It was just a practical necessity. Uh, so there have been times where the church has met in homes because they didn't have any alternative. There, you know, you might say in China today, you know, where the church largely has to function underground, and the church in many cases is not allowed to own property or buy or build a building. The church has to meet in homes, and so that's fine. That if that's if that's the situation, if that's the set of circumstances right. you're in. But I think the I think the problem here is that the home church movement, as it exists in America today, of course, is totally unnecessary uh, compared to you know say someplace like China where the church does have to function in an underground right. sort of way. Uh, I, I think one of the big issues with it is it basically uh, it reflects a very low view of the institutional church, and it really mm-hmm. seeks to privatize the church. The church becomes just an extension of the family not a distinct institution with its own government that in some way transcends family government and, and stands outside of and in some ways over and above family government. Right. So that really goes back to what you were saying about, you know, say, accountability. And you'll have these, these guys who they see themselves as, okay, I'm the head of my household. Okay, well, I'm also going to be the head of my own family church. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, in reality, you need you know this. This is another way to think about it. Um, your family is not your only family. You know, you have your blood family. You know, your wife you're married to, and the kids y'all have together. That's a family. But there's also the family of God, which is the church. And that family has within itself uh, its own officers who function as fathers or overseers or heads of that household. So the pastor and the elders are the, the, the heads of that ecclesiastical family, that ecclesial family. And, and ultimately, that family is actually more important and more foundational than your natural biological family. Uh, water, the waters of baptism, water is thicker than blood. Mm-hmm. Okay, obviously, yeah. not literally, but but in terms of our, in terms of how we rank our commitments, mm-hmm. uh, and and you, we've talked about this before. You know the limits on natural affection. Sure. Uh, Deuteronomy thirteen. Even if one of your own family members in ancient Israel uh, turns away from worshiping Yahweh and starts to proselytize for another god, becomes an evangelist for an idol, mm-hmm. uh, that person is to be executed. Because you, you know, this would basically be their their old covenant form of church discipline, uh, but uh, your commitment to worshiping Yahweh is is higher. Uh, that's a higher priority than family bonds, family ties, and yeah. so you might you might have to per, you know participate in the execution of a family member if they turn away. Jesus is getting at the same thing when he says you have to hate father and mother to be my disciple. Mm-hmm. You have to put following me and the family I'm forming around myself, the family of disciples, the church, above your natural family. Now, we're Cato Baptists. We believe that grace restores nature. We believe that the family is restored by God's grace. Uh, and so our hope, of course, is always that every member of our natural family will also be a part of the church family. Every member of our natural family will be part of the right. supernatural family of the church. That's always our hope. But we know that it does not always work out that way, head for head. And so if you have a child who turns his back on Christ and walks away from the faith, uh, you have to be willing for your church to excommunicate your child, as painful as that would be. Because that's the right thing to do. That's a test of your loyalties there. And is your higher loyalty to Jesus or to your child? Yeah. Well, I think another thing... Yeah, that's that's really good, um, and 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 I think you know as as we're as as we're you're talking about <clears throat> romanticizing kind of a bygone era, uh, going back to simpler time. I, I do think there is kind of this shrinking from responsibility and maturity, you know, by and, and sort of rejecting your inheritance. It's like, it's like, <clears throat> yeah, our 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 forefathers, um, you know, met in homes. Um, so that the gospel could spread to the point to where we, we, we live in a city where there are a hundred churches. Um, and, uh, and for us to say, well, I, I kind of like the idea of, of how simple it was back then. Let's just go back to that, you know, is, is, is a, is an act of kind of willful, uh, rejection of, of your yeah. inheritance. And, and, and I, and I think responsibility, I mean, the church is, as a member of the church, you, you have a duty to pr- pursue its, you know, purity and its peace and, and, and help purify the bride of Christ. And, um, if, if there are problems, get, get in there, get your hands dirty. Um, yeah, you're exactly right. So, so I like, you know, the people that are committed, say to home church or private church and something like that. I mean, one question I'll ask is, well, where'd you get your Bible? Right. God didn't just drop the Bible down on a string from heaven right into your family you have the Bible because the institutional church 
mm-hmm. took it upon herself to preserve that Bible and 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 translate that Bible and disseminate that Bible and teach that Bible and publish that Bible uh, is because of what Christians in past generations have done in a very institutional kind of way. That's why you have a Bible today. Right. Uh, a, you know, a, a home church uh, would never have been able to accomplish that. Right. Um, and you can do this with other things too, whether it's missions or whatever. It just, it puts so many limitations and it, it, right. and it, it has a tendency to really privatize uh, the role of the church when really what we need more than anything is for the church to, uh, to, 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 to put herself forward as a yeah. public institution, the embassy right. of Christ's kingdom uh, on earth. That's what the church is, and the church right. needs to act like a kingdom. Paul, or uh, I'm sorry, Peter in First Peter two describes the church as a holy nation. The church needs to function like a holy nation. There are certain right. features of nationhood or nationality that belong to the church, and the church is your primary nation. Your primary loyalty and citizenship is in this kingdom of the church. Right. Well, and we didn't we didn't even get into. Um, Acts 15 and the the council in Jerusalem, you know, um, but, but, but just for, for somebody who wants to, and and we, we did kind of touch on the topic of denominations. Um, and, and, you know, the, uh, Jason Cherry, who's, who preaches as one of our elders at, at, at our church here in Huntsville, we do a, a new members class every so often. We call it TRC 101. And we just kind of, we have like three different classes and we just kind of talk through some, some high level stuff. And Jason does a really wonderful job talking about denominations. And, you know, he came out of the non-denomination world um, in Acts 29 and that, that kind of world. And, um, and it's so funny because it's so common, again, here in, 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 in Huntsville today, I feel like you hear this comment all the time. Well, well, denominations aren't biblical. Denominations aren't something Jesus would have recognized or liked. And, and, and you start to ask, you know, Jason points this out, well, what does denominate mean? Like, what does the word itself mean? Well, it just means to name. It just means to name. So you're, 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 we're pitting against, we're pitting non-denom, those churches who are not willing to name what it is they believe, against churches who are willing to name publicly, name, you know, and identify and claim what it is they believe. And so the, the reality is that they both believe something and both are teaching something. It's just one keeps that keeps those beliefs, you know, hidden, where where they might be willing to change them as the winds of doctrine blow, where the other actually names them and and commits to them, um, and I think that's a it's just, it's kind of an inevitability, you know, it's it's a your church is going to have its beliefs. The question is, do you know what they are or not? Right, right. Yeah, you're right. You're right. There's there's a kind of honesty there. Um, Larson, I know we need to wrap this up, but yeah. uh, I'll just I'll just make a couple more yeah, uh, please. things to maybe tie together some of these loose ends. You know, one is a lot of American Christians will talk about their quiet time, their daily devotional time, and really make yeah. that central and foundational. I think reading the Bible, studying the Bible, uh, on your own day by day, memorizing scripture on your own, doing yeah. family worship, reading the scriptures with your family and, and all that, doing, do, doing Bible study with groups of other Christians during the week, all of that is wonderful. Yeah. But there's, there, there's a lot of, um, there are a lot of texts in scripture that show us that the gathering of God's people for corporate worship, for public worship, is more central and more foundational. One of my favorites is Psalm 87, verse 2. 
In Psalm 87, 2, God says he loves the gates of Zion. So Zion, of course, is the temple. That's the place of public worship, gathered worship. God says he loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Well, the dwellings of Jacob, of course, are their private homes. Okay? Good. God loves the place of corporate worship more than he loves your private home. He loves the place of public worship more than he loves where your private family dwells and has private devotions and does all those other family things. Okay, so that's really, really important. Uh, the, 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 the centrality of the church, I think, is reflected in that passage. Again, that's not to say that times of family worship or, or, or your daily time of Bible reading, that's not to say that those are unimportant. It's to say they're less important. They're not as central. You ought to see them as flowing out of gathered worship, not standing on their own, but flowing out of gathered worship. When you separate the Bible from the life of the church, when you separate the Bible from uh, the life of the uh, of the believing community, the Bible is no longer a means of grace to you. There are people who study the Bible who are in cults. There are people who study the Bible yeah, who are in right. universities. And the Bible does not function as a means of grace for them. What the Bible really means is closed off to them. Their eyes are closed to it because the Bible was designed to function in the context of the people of God. Yeah, that's, uh, that's where the Bible belongs. That's where the Bible is going to be rightly understood is in that context. So it's not the Bible on its own. It's the Bible uh, with the church and in the context of the church. And of course, the Bible's infallible. The church is not. The Bible's infallible. No preacher is. So the yeah. church has always got to be open to reform and correction. Pastors have to always be open to reform and correction from the word. But still, that's how God designed the word to function is in the context of the believing community, not apart from it. The other thing I want to say is that when it comes to going to church, to, to church attendance, to gathering with your church every, every Sunday, I realize that a lot of churches, because... Uh, their worship is poorly done. They don't have a good understanding of how God delivers his gifts to us through the liturgy. You know, it might, it might not seem like there's anything special. If your church doesn't do weekly communion, it, it might seem like, well, why do I, you know, what can I, what, what am I supposed to get from church that I can't get elsewhere? And, and those are all problems. Again, those are problems that I think are systemic in the American church. And that's part of why we're in the mess we're in. But I want to frame the whole uh, obligation to attend church differently maybe than it's sometimes done and even somewhat differently than we have earlier in this conversation. Gathering for public worship with God's people is not just a got to, it's a get to. In other words, it's not just a duty, an obligation, a responsibility. It is a privilege and a gift. And when we understand how God is present in the service to give us his gifts in a way that we cannot get anywhere else, then we start to see the uniqueness the specialness, uh, the importance of gathered worship, that it really is a gift to us. When we are called, when we are summoned to worship God, summoned into God's presence on every Lord's day, God is saying, I have these gifts I want to give to you. I have these gifts I want to give to you. Come and get them. Mm -hmm. Come and get them. That, that's what it's all about. Come and get these gifts of life, wisdom, and glory. The things that were locked up in the most holy place, you know, you think about uh, the copy of the Ten Commandments, the uh, you know Aaron's rod that blossomed, um, the um, what's the other, the manna from heaven. Uh, th those were the gifts that were in, that were kept in the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place because they represented life, wisdom, and glory. Those very mm -hmm. gifts that God's people so desperately wanted. And of course, they were locked out of the most holy place. Well, now we as Christians have access to the heavenly most holy place. We have access to the manna from heaven and the Lord's Supper every week. We have access to 
the word that they had on the tablets of stone. We, you know, we now have the word uh, preached to us with the power of the spirit. Uh, Aaron's rod that blossomed, the glory of, of rule. All mm. these things are offered to us, and yet a lot of Christians are like, well, you know, maybe I'll find something better to do. Maybe there's something better on TV this Sunday morning. Maybe my kid's right. soccer game is more important. No, this is the God of the universe who is offering to you gifts that were locked up in his treasury in the most holy place for thousands of years, who is now offering those gifts to you freely. All you have to do is show up and receive them. Yep. That's an amazing privilege. Worship is, you know, gathering for church every Lord's Day is not a got to, it's a get to. Or if I can put it in, 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 in this way, I don't really like this kind of terminology, but I'll still use it here to make a point. When we talk about the importance of, of going to worship every Lord's Day, that's not a matter of law. It's a matter of gospel. Hmm. It's not law. It's gospel. It's yeah. not got to. It's get to. It's a matter yeah. of gift. It's a matter of grace. Uh, God is present for us uh, in all his love. God has clothed himself in the gospel. When we gather together, we can know that God is for us and wants to give us these gifts. And that is good news to us. That's, that's exactly what we need. So we can live the Christian life another week. So we can turn our daily life into, uh, into worship. The liturgy after the liturgy. That's what it's all about. So so I, we've got to reframe the whole way we think about this. It's not a matter of obligation and duty and, oh, I, I, you know, I don't really want to go to church, but I know I'm supposed to kind of thing. Yeah. No, it's the God of the universe is giving me his gifts. The God of the universe wants to meet with me. The God of the universe has invited me to his house for dinner. Yeah. How dare I say no? I want yeah. that. I want that more than anything. Yeah, that's a good word. That's a good word, and and, and you're spot on. Um, and, and and you know, there's there's blessing. <clears throat> there's no blessing outside of obedience. You know, and and so obey, um, trust the gospel, receive it. Um, you know, I, I this is probably a can of worms, so I, I won't I won't encourage that we go down it. But maybe this is a topic for another discussion, just around kind of church planting, because I think. I think there is a situation, and and my family and I found ourselves in this situation where we we really crave, des- craved desperately um, the good news of 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 being members of a healthy, vibrant church body, and um, and try as we could, we might, we couldn't find um, a church that that was um, that really was healthy and vibrant and meeting the needs of our family and and um, and it and, and it wasn't for lack of trying, but we ultimately decided this is this is essential for our family. This is essential infrastructure for us to, to be able to live faithfully and raise and train up children faithfully. Um, and so we we had determined that we were going to move um, or or try to plant a church. You know, if if, if we couldn't plant a church, yeah. if we couldn't help yeah. a church, you know, then we were going to plant one or, or move. So I do think there are a lot of people who, unfortunately, I do think there are a lot of bad churches. <laughs> you know, that's it. That is a you're real right, problem. You're right. You're right. Yeah. That is a real problem. Um, so, but the but the reaction can't be, well, just don't go, or just do a home church thing. Um, it, there's got to be a better a better answer than than just stop going because you don't like right, it. Right. They're just dropping it. Right. I, I I totally agree. So hopefully this podcast, you know, I mean I'm sure a lot of people listen to us are already on the same page. But if anybody out there is not uh, and you want more help with these things, thinking these things through, we're yeah. trying to find a good church, feel free to reach out to either one of us. We'd be happy to talk yeah. to you about it. 
because uh, obviously it's really, really crucial. Yeah. Amen. Amen.